Good morning. We are into our second session and fall conference at the feast, and uh, I wanted to just uh, welcome those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, you may have missed Friday. We were Friday evening session. Uh, we were talking about the wilderness and how God takes us out of Egypt, out of our old life, our old self, our old place of bondage, and takes us through the Red Sea by which we die to ourselves, then brings us under the cloud and the fire of the Holy Spirit so that we can be baptized into God, be placed in Him. And then He takes us into the wilderness, and the wilderness is a very strange place. It's temporary, it's not the, the, the permanent place for us, but it is a place that's very special in the sense God begins to make us. Uh, he takes Egypt out of us. Before we, took, we, we went out of Egypt, now God, during the wilderness, takes Egypt and all its uh, bondages out of our own uh, self. And we spoke a little bit about that uh, yesterday. And the reason why God takes us through the wilderness is not for the wilderness itself, but because of the fact that He has a, a future and a hope for us. And He wants to cause us, who have been slaves before, to be conquerors, because he has a promised land in store for us. And the promised land uh, has to do with the, uh, the inheritance and the destiny that God has for us. The, in the, the, the wilderness is a place in which God begins to establish knowing in us. Not just knowing in our heads, but knowing that we know that we know that we know that the devil knows that we know. Yeah? And uh, it's in this place that God begins to put the knowing, not, in, not just in our heads, not in our memory only, but in our flesh, in our flesh and blood. Um, I'm going to read to you the passage that we were reading uh, yesterday, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you will find that um, the first uh, six verses are about the process, the meaning of the process, what the wilderness is supposed to do in our lives. And uh, let's have a look at this. The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your father. So all these instructions is for our, our success, actually. Our success, our, so that we can be people who can possess the land that God has for us. Verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, Deep work there. He searches our hearts, whether you would keep his commandment or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Notice the number of times the word know is used. God wants to bring a knowing in us, a knowing that will be more dense and more powerful than all the enemies that we will face in the promised land. Verse 4, Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then, there you go, there's that word, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And I will put it to you that this uh, today that actually this is the rubric, this is the meaning of everything that we go through. Everything that we go through in the wilderness is not because of the fact that God hates us or that things are random, but because God is disciplining us and He has a future for us as a father has for His Son. And I want to uh, also say that when the Bible uses the word son, more often the word than the word than not, 
The word son doesn't specifically refer to gender. It refers to the fact that the father has a future, a purpose, a destiny for his children. So you can be a daughter and yet be a son, so to speak, or you can be a son and yet still be a daughter. Okay. So we're going to talk about this sonship because many of us have no idea about what that means. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll carry on. So verse, verse 1 to verse 6 has to do with the process of the wilderness. Then the next few verses have to do with the promise of the wilderness. Know then that in your heart, verse, uh, verse 5, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Then verse 7 onwards uh, is the promise. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. And this has to do with relationships. It has to do with the place of our vocation. It has to do with the la- the, 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 social network around us that God wants to use us to bless. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, springing out of valleys and hills. And always in the Old Testament, when God speaks about water, about springs and fields, He's speaking about the, the springing up of the Holy Spirit's life in us. Yeah, Direct access to His power and His life. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olives trees and honey. A lot of times wheat and barley has, speaks, speaks of the word of God. It speaks to, speaks to us of um, the fruit, f- f- uh, the success and prosperity that God gives to us, especially about the word, in the word of God, of vines and vines, which speaks about the, the wine of the Holy Spirit, yeah, the gifts of the Spirit. Sometimes people think of it that way. Fig trees speaks of fruitfulness. Fig trees and uh, the, the nation of Israel was a fig tree as well in Jesus' time. Uh, he used that symbol as a nationhood and a corporate life. Pomegranate speaks of fruitfulness, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. Land of olive trees. Olive speaks of, of the Holy Spirit, the oil of the Holy Spirit, the, the healing of power and Holy Spirit and honey, which has to do with the revelation of God from His Word. So you can uh, do a whole study in that. We don't have time for that. Um, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. It will be completely different from the, the, the life in the wilderness. The life in the wilderness, in some ways, is an abnormal life. It's a temporary life. It is a life that has a finite space of time. It's, a, it's, a, it's an experience that has a finite space of time. But that's not the point of the wilderness. The point of the wilderness is not the wilderness in itself, but to prepare us for the promised land. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. A lot of the land... The, the value of it is under the land, actually. And you shall eat and be full or satisfied. How many of you want to be satisfied? Yeah? You want to be satisfied, not just, not just full in terms of feeling uncomfortable, but satisfied in the, sense of, in the sense of the fact that your deepest desires are met. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. And then um, uh, verse, verse 11 to 19 uh, has to do with the way in which God is, t- is taking us. Okay, the process, the promise, and then the way. Take care, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full or satisfied and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiply, multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Now, notice how different this is going to be from wilderness experience. God is anticipating a completely 
in some ways, opposite kind of life, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. It is possible, what God is saying is that, after all this wilderness experience, when you've experienced an, a certain intensity and a certain sharpness of God's presence, you could actually forget it because of the fact that your circumstances are very different. There is going to time in which going to be a time in which the difficulty of your circumstances will change. That is the promise of God. And then when that happens, that's the real test. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great, and this is the, this is the path, the great and terrifying wilderness. Wilderness does have terrifying things in it. And fear can come up. And with its great fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, right? There's fever, lack, and thirst. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. There is a good at the end that God has for you. And that's why Christians, when they're going through difficult times, we always have a hope that these difficult times are not going to last forever. That is not the point of God's, God's, uh, God's making you suffer. God's not, not, does not delight in that. He wants to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. And last night I said, are you embarrassed by that, wealth, that, that, by that verse? I'm not that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this is the, 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 the threefold uh, um, aspects of uh, this this chapter eight, uh, Deuteronomy chapter eight, he tells us that there's a process that we are going through. There's a promise for us, and there's a way in which the circumstances of our wilderness can sometimes feel very inhospitable. But there is a warning there that this thing, will, this will all come to an end. And when it comes to an end, you will not be put into circumstances that are so pinchy so squeezy of you, not so concentrated, not so intense, not so uh, filled with uh, lack anymore. There will come a time that you will not be squeezed towards God. You will not be disciplined towards God. That discipline will be tested when prosperity comes to you in the promised land. And so I'd like to pray as we, uh, as we look at this passage because I think there's quite a bit to, of... Uh, of, uh, of uh, things that God has to say. Lord, we ask you that even now that you would, uh, in this morning, that you have given to us, fill that space with your speaking and our hearing. We ask you that you would cause us to be sensitized to your voice and that you speak to us in such a way that we know what to do. More importantly, we ask you that when you speak to us, we will feel that our hearts, our desires even change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 We spoke about the fact that uh, the wilderness is, is purposed for us so that God will put such a strong and powerful knowing of His faithfulness, of who He is in us, to such an extent that when we face the 
promised land and the giants ahead of us, in order for God to actually bless us, we will find that that knowing becomes more solid than all the bows and arrows and all the, uh, the enemies that come against us. They will be more solid than the giants. That knowing is not a, just a cognitive knowing, it's not a book learning, but it is a knowing that comes from a process in which the Holy Spirit takes us through testing, takes us through humbling, takes us through hungering, and takes us through feeding. Yeah? And so I want to put it to you that the wilderness, yes, is not comfortable. It is not comfortable. It is in some ways abnormal, but the wilderness has a way of stripping off all the things that we think are more real, that we go after, that we get distracted by, that we think are the real world. This wilderness takes away those things. I mean, I'm sure you, many of you have seen The Matrix. And The Matrix, when you, you see that there is uh, what things look like in The Matrix, look like normal life, looks like lots of attractive things, there are lots of things that we go for. But that's not really the real world in that sense. But when The Matrix is sort of torn down, then you see Zion or you see the situation as it really is. And it looks more like the wilderness. Uh, maybe that may help sort of give us a picture of what the wilderness is. The wilderness is what things really are spiritually with us. And what God was, was doing was that he was taking them through the wilderness so that they are shorn off, stripped off all those extra stuff, all those distractions, all those things that the world, all the constructs of the world, the attractions of the world, of the world, the things of Egypt that get our goat, that have a way of pressing our buttons. The, these are the things that are, that are moved in, moved out. And it's almost like a squeezing time. It's a, it's a time of squeezing. You know, COVID-19, I un, uh, understand, is that kind of time, isn't it? Don't you find that you are, you don't have access to the friends that you have? There are things in which loves are sometimes not available to us. Uh, comfortable things that are not available. We can't go to the restaurants or sit inside in the same way. We can't actually even pray with one another and be able to touch one another. We can't hold hands and pray. We can't do all a lot, a lot of a lot of these things. And I just want to say that sometimes um, during such such times we can actually shut down because of because of that. We can shut down because of the wilderness. And I understand that as we are meeting for the first time in a in a conference with Zoom. We can feel very restricted by all the Zoom stuff, all the tech, tech stuff, and all the fact that we can't be in person. You know, I, I understand that. But I, may I suggest to you that sometimes God brings us through the wilderness and allows to be imposed upon us some of these restrictions so that we'll be trained by that. If you rebel against it, what's going to happen is that you may be rebelling against a new normal. Who knows? You may be rebelling against the very instrument through which God wants to use to cause you to have tremendous blessing. I remember the first time when we had our first live stream, the first time we had our daily prayer, how difficult it was. It was so difficult to pray and not have that feedback in which you have somebody saying amen or, so, or something like that because everybody has to mute their, 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 their speaker and all that. And it's very hard for some people. But you know, I got to tell you that over the, uh, the past six or seven months, we have ex- has had some of the deepest, strongest prayers, the most bonding prayers that, that, uh, that we, we as a church have had for um, the daily, you know, 20, 25 to 30 people that actually come. 
I feel so bonded with these people in a way that I had not experienced before through this thing, this monstrosity we call the Zoom, the Zoom experience. I want to say that, that, that there are times in which the children of Israel rejected the way in which God was going because they just shut down. You remember the time when, when they, they felt that they, they complained against God because God uh, had brought them and they had 40 days of provisions. And the journey uh, to the promised land should have lasted around that time or perhaps a little bit more, a, l- a little bit longer. Some people say a little, a little bit less. But they had brought enough for 40 days. And when the 40 days ran out, all the food ran out, they had come to a place where they, they felt completely trapped in the wilderness. And it was in this place that God wanted to cause them to experience His faithfulness. But when he brought the manna, when he brought the bread from heaven, he opened up the sky, it is almost as if it was, he was arguing with them. They were saying, God had left us, brought us us out to kill us, and he doesn't care for us. And God opens up the heavens, and he answers them with manna, this strange provision of bread that fell from the sky. God himself called it the bread of heaven. But do you know what the people called it? They called it, what is this? Manna, the meaning of manna, God says in Exodus chapter 16, means, means, what is this or what is it? It's almost as if people's answer to God's provision was a shutting down, not receiving what God had. Later on, they complained about the manna. But actually, manna was the way in which God was in a disciplined way, in a, in a, in a, in a fatherly way, training them that they, they could depend on Him. So anyway, I, I want to say that at, at this time, during this wilderness, there's a way in which we are, we, are, we, are, we are crimped in some ways. And that crimping is to show us the situation as, we, as it really is as far as our hearts are concerned. And it's to show us where the real supply is, who the real God is, and what the real purpose of, of, of uh, our life is. And so, let's have a look at it. Um, uh, we'll read the first, first uh, five or six chapter, uh, verses. You shall be careful to do all that you that do, uh, as, as far as the things that God is con- commanding them, that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord sh- war to give to your fathers. So he's equipping them, right? These are very important instructions. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Which you did not know. What God is basically saying is that you don't know anything, actually. Don't even think that you know anything. You don't even think you know how to, to anticipate what, how things are going to work out. This manner is completely outside of your understanding and it will do you well to have a humble attitude to what I do in your life rather than judging it. Yeah? You do not know. You, your fathers did not know. Uh, and there are several times in which the prophets even say to the children of Israel, Isaiah, I think Isaiah 48, I did this and you did not know about it. Don't think you knew about it. You, you need to have a certain humble, uh, disciplined, unknowing as you allow yourself to be open to me. Um, that, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth uh, of God. 
Wilderness is very important because God is going to put that in so that we will be men and women of God that live and are made and, and built up by the Word of God, every word that comes from God. Wilderness is important. Without wilderness, there's no promised land. Wilderness is that intensified, squeezed time of spiritual formation. It's characterized often by lack. But wilderness requires us so let me say, but it's a wilderness, the experience is required of us. You know, in the Bible, the word wilderness is, uh, is used after uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy, after this thing, as the archetypal symbol for God's dealing and preparation of any man or woman of God. For example, you think... You think about it this, uh, this way. David had to go through the wilderness. He spent many time, many years in the wilderness of Zin. And it's in this place he humbled him. He made him know the God in the times of thirst. It was his, in this time that God shaped his heart. Many of his psalms were written in the wilderness. Wilderness is the time where God brings us close to him, in intimacy with him. God in the wilderness causes us to not necessarily experience the visible miracles that we saw when we, first, when, we, when, we, when we first became Christians. It's almost as if the physical nature of, of miracles, the obvious eye-catching nature of miracles, ceases. And then in the wilderness, you have to go by, not by what your eyes see, but what your spirit senses. And you have to really live by every word that comes from it, every single word that comes. And it is in this place that God makes the man or woman of God. It's in this place that David, in his wilderness experience, was met God. When everything was, 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 was cut aside, when there were no, no, no intermediaries, then he come face to face with God. Wilderness seems to be a place in which God is far away, but actually wilderness is the place of intimacy. Why? Because God changes the mode in which we look for Him, not looking for Him in the flesh, not looking for Him by things that can be seen or that seem logical, but by our spirit, by eyes of faith, by waiting. And in that waiting, God begins to change us. David had to go through the wilderness. Uh, Moses had to go through the wilderness. The nation of Israel had to go through the wilderness. John the Baptist had to go through the wilderness. He lived in the wilderness to such an extent that he became nothing, nothing about this man who sometimes movies portray as this he-man kind of person who's like really buffed. But actually he becomes nothing but a voice in the wilderness. I am, who are, who are you? What's your identity? Nothing about all those things that other people would use as markers or identity. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, where God can actually reduce all that fleshly stuff so that we are nothing but a voice, a voice that's so powerful. And it's in this place where he had no problems losing his disciples to Jesus when he said, he must increase and I decrease. Wilderness is the way in which God decreases our pride. He decreases our sense of self-importance. He decreases ourselves, our, 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 our point of view so that everything is about us. And he reduces it so that we are about God. It is in this place that Paul was, 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 uh, was transformed. For three years, he was in the, in the wilderness of Arabia. And then if you, if you look in Galatians chapter 1, he's very feisty about it. He says, when I was in the, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness of Arabia, God spoke things to me and he revealed things to me. That is what the wilderness is. When Paul converted himself from being a person who saw by his eyes and by his ears, by, by physical senses, to a person who had to, to by, by, by humility 
And by waiting, wait upon that still small voice of God. God began to um, speak to him and uh, reveal to him certain things. He says that when I went to go and see James and all those people who seemed to be people in authority, they could add nothing to me because, except what, because God had spoken to me originally. Wilderness makes you an original. Wilderness, without the wilderness, you will just be copying everybody else. You'll be, you'll be just parroting what all the other people are saying. Whether they are right or wrong, you will just follow the buzzwords. You'll follow the, 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 the celebrities, the, the, the preachers of celebrities. You'll just copy their words. And they will just, and your language will be language that I, that you can, can be sourced somewhere else. You are, you, you have no originality. But what God does in the wilderness is makes you a contribution to the world. A unique contribution. For that to happen, you have to experience your own personal uh, revelation of God. And it is in the wilderness that God removes every kind of resource that we will reach out to. All the tapes and the, and the, uh, you, you, uh, yeah, I guess we don't have tapes anymore. All the, all the, all the downloads of great, great preaching. And I'm not against all this. I myself subscribe to many of them, many of them. You, it's, it's in this place where sometimes you don't have that. And you're just by yourself and you only can hear the voice of the wind. And you only see sand. And there's no preacher, there's no comfortable setup for you. And it's in this place that God makes us. I want to tell you that the promised land is predicated upon the wilderness. The wilderness when we are left by ourselves. And, and God actually um, becomes our only resource. And in doing these times, he, it's almost as if He squeezes out all the extraneous resources. There'll come a time when they'll come back again and you will have all that and you will have all the accolades and all the, the friendships and all the support groups and all that. But there are some times when God leads us into extraordinary circumstances. They're temporary, no doubt. They're no doubt. But they are real. And in this place, it's you and God. And I believe that when God says, when, 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 uh, when God says that you will know he really means this kind of knowing. It's a knowing that came from direct revelation from God. What I've seen uh, a lot in the Church of Jesus Christ today is that most Christians, they live out of books, out of tapes, or not tapes, <laughs> out of downloads, about what everybody else says. They can quote this and they are great scholars and all that, but they don't have an original and a direct relationship with God to speak of. And so I want to say that in this, in this wilderness, it's important that we understand the process that God is doing. You know, God has great things for all of us. Whether you are a, a, a person who's a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a writer, a musician, or an actor, or a, or a, or a producer, or a bin man, as we say, or the trash man, you have an original vocation that God has for you. It is in the wilderness where everything seems to be taken away that God wants to do this and put the knowing in you. That you will know that you know that you know that the devil knows that you know that when people ask you questions about the thing that you purport to know, when you write your book, when you finish writing your book, when people ask you questions, they will be, they will be in wonderment that what you wrote was just the tip of the iceberg. 
that what you preach or what you speak about, what you advise people, you coach, you life coach people about, when they get to know you more and more, they know that what you know is far greater than what you spoke about. And you know what? It is this kind of knowing that's going to destroy the devil. Because you will know that you know that the devil knows that you know. But here's the other thing. The devil knows if you don't know. The devil knows it. And he will press those specific buttons. Those places where you don't actually know that God provides. You don't actually know that God satisfies. You don't actually know that God heals. You don't actually know and the devil will press those things because he can see right through you. I don't know how, but he can see right through you and me. And he knows whether we know that we know that we know. And he knows when we don't know. And I don't mean cognitive, I mean knowing in terms of the substance of it. And so it is, it is because of this that the process of God's dealings with us in the wilderness is so very important. And I want to focus on... Um, for, at least for one, one aspect of that process um, today. And you can find this in um, verse 3. And he humbled you and let your hunger, let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What, he was, what, what uh, Moses is saying, or if the author is Moses, uh, he's saying that um, what God did was to actually cause you to experience hunger, real hunger, lack, deficit, and then fed you. They, do, they both go together. Not just hunger and not feeding, but hunger and feeding. God does that in the wilderness. He allows us to experience hunger. We all have hunger. And I said last night that we hunger for different things. But there is a deeper hunger that all of us have, and it's the, the hunger for the living God, the real hunger. And what um, uh, Moses was basically saying is this. When, he, when we hunger, that hunger is something that can only be fed by the bread of God. If you look in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you don't have me, you, don't, you have no life in yourself. If you, can, you can take uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8, chapter six, uh, Exodus chapter 16, all about bread in the wilderness, and then take it to John chapter 6, and John says, and John says, Jesus says, you know what? Your fathers were, ate the, the manna in the wilderness, but that did, they still died. But if you eat of me, you will not die. What we are saying is this, there is a hunger that's in every one of us. And with that hunger, we sometimes don't realize that that hunger is only met in God. It's only satisfied in God. What we do is this, because the children of Israel came out of, of Egypt, we do the same thing. We reach back for all the things that they had in Egypt. We reach out for things that are in this world that are more like cravings. And instead of a hunger, uh, that hunger morphs into a craving for things of the world. C.S. Lewis talks about this as well when he says that a lot of sin is really a desire for something really good, but that's been misappropriated. It's been turned wrong, wrongly into some, a desire for something else. 
And I want to talk a little bit about that because that's going to be something that we all struggle with. We have all got a hunger, but our hunger is often waylaid or is hijacked by our knowledge of things that are out there in the world that satisfy our pleasure, our flesh, satisfy the flesh, but they don't satisfy us completely. And what God was basically saying is this, um, I'm going to let you know during the wilderness when you don't have access to those other distractions, those other loves, that I am your only love. And your experience in the wilderness is meant to crimp you in, to hedge you in, so that you don't look to these other things. Because there is going to come a time when these other things will be available to you. And that's what the, 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 the latter part of the chapter was. Those things will be available to you. And when that happens, you will be tested. But you must have this one experience or this collection of experiences in the wilderness where you learn that every hunger that you have is satisfied in me. Or else, when you go to the, to the, um, to the promised land, you will become like a grasshopper. You will be mincemeat for the giants. Let's have a look at this. I think of the hungers that we all have and the hungers that have a way of waylaying us. The hunger for success is one. The hunger for self-validation. The hunger for acceptance. It's all there. They're not all wrong. But the deep hunger in us for an identity, for, a, for being approved of, is always there. I love C.S. Lewis's um, uh, article. Um, it's called "The Hope of the the Weight of Glory," and he talks about the fact that we have different kinds of motivations, and there is a pure motivation that he detects. It's a motivation that causes a little child sometimes to want approval by a father or a teacher. And he says that is an, a pure approval, the proper desire for approval that a lower wants from the higher. Does that make sense? It's for a small moment, he says, for a short moment, I detect that the desire that a pupil has or a, or a student has from the teacher's approval or a son or a daughter that has for the father or mother's approval is pure. It is that desire to have that well done, my good and faithful son or servant. That's that. And it's pure. It's something really good. God wants us to have that relationship of intimacy with him where he, like a father, becomes our father so that we live for his pleasure, for his approval. He says there are ways in which these things get all twisted and we, become, we begin to be jockeying for, for favor and jockeying for, for uh, specialness and all that. And that's, that's sinful. Or he says, but there is an original, an original a sense of that pure desire for approval. I want to say something about this lack, this lack or this hunger, the hunger for approval by God. There's something that is true in all of us. We want to be approved by God. We want God to be, to be able to say on that last day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your, of the, of your father. And we, we have that, but there's a way in which we are constantly looking for approval from man. We are constantly looking to self-validate. And in, in, even in success, we are looking for those symbols of success 
that are there. And what God says is this, I suffer you to hunger because I will feed you. And it's a very simple formula. You will hunger, I will feed you. You will hunger and I will feed you and I will feed you by every word that proceeds out of my mouth. Because those words that proceed out of my mouth will be substance. I will give you what you need. I'll give you manna so that you will know that whenever you hunger, you don't have to push that hunger away. You don't have to sublimate it. You don't have to take it and, 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 and seek after the things of the world because I'm your father. And because I'm your father, I, my formula is this. You hunger, I feed. You hunger, I feed. I allow you to, to hunger. The allowing of hunger is a really important thing because hunger is a very powerful thing, a very powerful spirit or a, a powerful motivation to press into the things that are precious. Hunger becomes craving and lust when we mis, misdirect that hunger away from God to other things in the, in the world. And I want to tell you that actually God deals with us in the wilderness as a father disciplines his child. What, what it means is this. He changes, he tunes, he remakes our desires so that our desires no longer stay with the diseased things, but with God. And the wilderness is, a, is often a removal of those extraneous things so that God can actually give us his fatherhood, his approval, or his, his bread. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. The reason why we see such an emphasis in Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 8, upon this whole thing of um, watch out when you go to the promised land and you have all those things, you don't get corrupted, you don't, you don't forget it was me. In some ways, Hosea speaks to the nation of Israel after they entered in the promised land. Hosea is written to the children of Israel around the time when Israel was very, very, had become very, very prosperous. It seems like the prosperity of Israel, or Judah, seemed to kind of flow with evil kings. It's almost as if evil kings like Ahab, Uzziah, well, Uzziah was kind of a mix, mixture, wasn't he? Um, were, ty- were, were, were kings who were successful, but that success had led the nation astray. But it's interesting because Hosea tells us of, a, of what Israel was like when they became successful and they entered the promised land and missed out what they were supposed to have in the, um, in the wilderness. And here you see in Hosea, in chapter 2, we'll read it from verse, verse 8, the first thing God says is this, she did not know. Do you see that? She did not know. What did she not know? Well, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You see, the children of Israel couldn't distinguish between what God had given and what their own ingenuity had engendered, had produced. They couldn't. 
They couldn't discern sharply between the things of God and the things of the flesh. They had blessing and all that, but they, because they had forgotten their wilderness experience, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't remember every word. You know, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They couldn't distinguish everything that, that proceeds out of the mouth of God from all the other things that came from their own con- uh, connivance, their own contrivance, and their own efforts. And I tell you something, this is the problem with the church today. The church today can't tell the difference between God and good. They can't tell the difference between God and our own blessings because we make it easy for ourselves to get success. We get, make it easy for us to self-affirm. Isn't that right? We create communities in which we are so affirming that we don't know whether that affirmation is real or not. Have you, have you met people who are so affirming that you really don't know what it means when they say, that was wonderful and great and all that. We work so hard in schools to affirm children and, 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 and affirm, all the, uh, affirm um, pupils and all that. And I, I think there's, there's something really good about it. Really, please, please, please don't get me wrong. I'm not a, a sort of a bar humbug kind of person. I really believe in affirmation. But there's a way in which we go after the products of good, like self-confidence, rather than the God of, con- of self-confidence. Of con- and so as a result of that, we have a whole society today that's built up on idolatry. And Isaiah chapter 46 speaks about the fact that the, 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 in, in times of, uh, of, uh, of trial, the idolaters are encouraging each other in their making of the idols. Oh, this is good, this is good, this is good. Do you realize that because of that, you don't know whether it's God or it's good, it's God or, or you, because you want so much to eat the hasty fruit of acceptance and, uh, and, and, and human uh, intimacy and all that. So that words are used and efforts are used to, to obliterate the waiting of the wilderness. To obliterate God's normal process by which He as a Father affirms us through due process. Because you see, the problem with, with most of us is this, we've not been fathered or mothered properly. We, many of us don't have godly parents who cared for you and looked over you and gave you affirmation in measure so that your affirmation and your understanding of where you stood was solid. Who didn't drug you and addict you to affirmation. Didn't addict you to the things that, were, that, that your soul uh, craved for. They didn't cook and, 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 and establish the hunger that was in you for greater things. But they gave you easier things. And that's why sometimes as parents, it's hard for us because of the fact that when our children are crying and they're miserable and all that, we just want to just make them happy. And as a result of that, we go reach for something that we did in Egypt and what other people did in Egypt. And as a result of that, there is no knowing. There is no knowing. And so when blessing comes, we pray for it, and then we engineer our way, and then God answers it. And then at the end... Was that God? Or was it this person? Or is it this other person? Or is it my engineering? And so, what had happened is that the intimacy that comes through painstaking following of God, of waiting, experiencing the lack, experiencing the hunger, and knowing what it means that there is a difference between hunger and feeding, is lost. Because we need to have things fast. 
And so because of that, our spirit is very, very weak, like grasshoppers. When we enter into the promised land, we will, you know what we'll do? We'll again reach for the things of Egypt so that we will get success. And so I want to, want to put it to you that actually Hosea is calling his nation back to him. She did not know that it was I. Can you imagine the heartbreak of God who tends to his people and gives them, even though they did not know it, even though they didn't give him glory, even they do, though they did not um, appreciate what he did, it says, you can see the lament of God's heart. They did not know that actually when they were praising Baal, when they were praising their technology, when they were praising human beings, they did not know that it was I who gave them success. And so here, God gives them a treatment. And ironically, the treatment is, take them back to the wilderness. Perhaps you are in that situation in which God is taking you back to the, to the, to the wilderness so that He can cure you and me as well. Or maybe our whole church. Let's see. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Remember, what the logic of it is this, in verse, from verse 8. The grain, the wine, the wool, flax, were all from God. They did not know it though. They didn't know it for, they didn't know it as they would know every word that comes out of God. Every miracle, every grace, everything, every particle of grace, every token of good. They did not know that. They couldn't feel the difference between the hunger and, and that token of good coming and dropping in there and feeling it. Oh yeah, it's there. They did not know that it was I. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. See, what God was saying is this, in our society's desire to be exposed, to be known, we are a look-at-me society. Even sometimes in the kind of the Western form of, of, of worship, we have so much of that kind of look-at-me, look-at-me, look-at-me. I was uh, privileged to have uh, in my old church some excellent musicians, very well-known uh, musicians who played with well-known jazz artists here in America as well. And one of the things we did uh, as a worship team is this. We made sure that the worship team did not face the audience, but it faced, faced the front. So that all of us, together with the musicians, and together, together with the singers and all that, faced the front. Now, I'm not recommending this for us because there are some awkwardnesses in, in that. But one of the things that God spoke to us very clearly during those days is this. Worship. You see, we had all these great musicians. We had these fantastic musicians. Musicians who were just... You, you know, they'll they play you out of town, okay? And the first thing that God did when, they, when, when God ministered to them is this. We are not going to come in as musicians. We're going to come as servants of the Lord. And it's best that nobody see us. And so they turned their back on the audience and joined the audience in worshipping God. There's a way in which sometimes we can actually um, be similar to these things, these, these things, 
in our society where actually a lot of our gatherings can be a celebration, not of God, but of ourselves. And what God was saying is, take it away. Take it away. Uh, this is not an indictment of our church. I feel that our church, our worship team is wonderful. And, uh, and God has worked in them. So don't get me wrong. Um, but he says, I will lay waste these celebrations of yourself. These celebrations of your own body, your lewdness. And instead of your own pawn that you, 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 uh, you parlay, you will have nakedness. And that's different. There's something condemning about that. And what God's saying is this. If you want to be exposed, be careful. Because if you make that the thing you reach for in your, your hunger, um, it will expose you. Right? We have a culture in which um, everybody seeks to be big and to be known and be exposed. And truly, exposure has come to so many. And so what God was saying is this, I will put an end to this. And then verse 14, it's beautiful. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Oh, I tell you, after all that intense stuff, you read Hosea, it feels like a comfort to be back into the wilderness. Oh, please, 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 take me back to the wilderness where you can deal with me privately and I can be small again. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Isn't this interesting, the language of a lover? The, the language of a father who loves his children so much. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's the love of God. I'm sorry. This is the wilderness. The wilderness is when God shows you how much he loves you. Not because you're successful. Not because people think you're great. Because God loves you and he lures you to the wilderness. And there I'll give her vineyards. I wanted to all this while. Vineyards was something I wanted for her. In the wilderness, I'll give you her wilderness, her vineyards. And make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. Achor uh, means trouble. A door of hope. A door of hope. And where is the hope? It doesn't come because you are in the promised land and wonderful things are happening and everybody's affirming you because, but in the wilderness where there's no one there except the sound of the wind and the sand. And if you listen hard enough, God, and I will put a door of hope where there doesn't seem to be any hope left when you've been stripped of everything and you think that after you have fallen, there's nothing left. There's no more hope. You've missed your chance. You muffed it up. You messed it up. And there's no hope for you. It is in this place, no matter what your sin is, no matter how badly you have done, no, how, no matter how unfaithful you've been, God says, I will put in you a door of hope in this wilderness. This door of hope is a hope that's solid. It does not disappoint. It's only found in the wilderness though. It doesn't, it's not found in your circle of affirming friends. It's found only in the wilderness. And God says, I will bring you and you will be with me again. You will be with me again. And then you will know. And bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Oak Acor the 
place of trouble, a door of hope. Isn't that amazing? A door of hope. Hope like an anchor to the soul, so solid. And there she will answer as me in the days of her youth, which is when she was in the wilderness. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And then that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal means Lord, by the way. You will, be, you will no longer look, call out to your masters. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remain, remembered by, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. I'm, I'm going to uh, just stop here a little bit before we go further. He says, I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. What God is speaking about is the fact that our desires, because of the fall, are diseased. There's something about a Baalism that's in us that makes us unfaithful. It makes spouses unfaithful to each other. It makes the desires run rampant all over the terrain, all over the land, looking for and never being satisfied. There's something about the Baalism that was in children of Israel. You can see this in Ezekiel chapter 16. You're like a, like a, like a girl in heat, like a, like, a, like, a, like a horse in heat. You're going all over there, wandering, and you're selling yourself everywhere, and you can't help it. Because you're hungering for intimacy, you're hungering for it, and you're looking for it in all the wrong places. And what Hosea was saying is this, Israel is diseased, but God wants to cure and heal and change that. So that in your mouth, in your lips, and in your heart will not be the name of this idol or this temptation or this seduction, but God. It is possible for you to experience that. If there's any of you who have an addiction to sex or pornography or, for, or to, uh, to impurity or to any particular sin, I want to say to you today that God is here to deliver you. He's here to deliver you from depression. He's delivered, here to deliver from every Baal that has oppressed you, that has tempted you, that you have gone for and then suddenly you found that you couldn't get out of. For every kind of mess that you're in, God, what Hosea is telling us and, and God by, his, by, by Hosea's prophecy is this, I'm going to take that away from you and there's a treatment for you and there's a way in which I'm going to heal you. It's in the wilderness. And when you come back to me, your, your, um, your poverty will be healed. He says, verse 18, And I will make for them a covenant on the day that, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in hesed, steadfast love, covenant love, and in mercy, I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Wow! You will know the Lord. And that word know is that same word, that yadat, that, that is, that, that, that's used as a, as, a, as a euphemism for a sexual intercourse. He's talking about the closest kind of knowing that you can have. I'll heal you. You may be in a situation in which you feel that you've been 
trapped and you've been diseased in your desires. And you say to me, I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm unfaithful. I can't do it. I'm, 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 I'm bound by all kinds of other gods and other temptations, other women, other men, or whatever it is. And God is saying, I'll heal you. I'll take you to the wilderness. And you'll have nobody. And in that place, I'll answer and make a covenant for you so that your prosperity is a covenant that I make with all of nature. And I'll make a covenant with the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and the creeping things, and I'll abolish the bow and the sword. I will do it. You see, God very quickly, all, all in one, one chapter, was so quickly wanted to move from you bad people to, okay, okay, I'm going to do this for you. See, God is like so keen to, 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 to take their suffering away from them. He not, does not delight in your suffering. He says, quick, quick, quickly, yes, yes, I see you respond. Okay, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you because that's my desire. And in that day I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, verse 21, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they will see and they will answer Yisrael, which means God will sow and God will begin to sow in your life the trees of righteousness, the victory over sin. The the, 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 the the spirit of the word of God. And now those of you who can't hear from God, let him sow it little by little, one by one, one by one. And be faithful in this. And he will begin to do a work of sowing. Because God's process of healing is not necessarily instantaneous. It is the sowing of the healing fruits, the healing things of God, the spirits. And I will sow for her myself. I will sow her for myself in land, in the land. And I'll mercy on no mercy. What God is saying is this. The land is supposed to reflect your relationship with me. If your land reflects your relationship with me, even though you go through wilderness, I will cause you to come out of the wilderness with an intimacy with me and that your land will, 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 will reflect your intimacy with me. And that is why I do believe in prosperity. I do believe that God wants to bless us because that's the nature of God but not that kind of prosperity that is reaching out to whatever we want. And sometimes Christians can do that. And he talks about it, that he will be my people. Do you know, we live in such a fatherless, motherless world because of the the brokenness that has made so many of us victims of that, that often when God speaks about being a father to us, we have no idea. A father is a person or a mother is a person who's able to tell a child where they stand. And this is the way. They know how to focus so much on the child because they have great hopes for them. God is a father. And he wants to us take us step by step, not too fast. Not too fast. If you've not been a father, uh, if you've not been fathered or mothered, you may want to go too fast because of the fact that you have no idea what's good for you. But God is actually going to do it through the wilderness. Not too fast. Not too slow either. If you go too slow, there'll be someone who's watching your, your pace. Amen? And God says that I, you will be called no longer not my people, but my people. I see many Christians who live as if they are nobody's people. And they hunger for community to, so that that community will become their people. And God says, first of all, you're going to know this. You're my son. 
you're my daughter. And that means that I am building you up. And when it is, when you are not performing, I'm going to help you. If you are doing better than most people, because I'm your father, there may be times in which I will say, that's still not good enough. And I will help you. That's what a father does. My children, have all, all three of them have told me, Daddy, I want you to correct me. Because they know that my correction is not a rejection. At least I hope they, don't, they know that. <laughs> I, Daddy, I want you to disciple me. One of my daughters told me, tells me again and again, I really want you to disciple me. What she means is this, I don't want you to just affirm me. I want a standard. I want to know whether that standard is something that I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing in which I'm hitting the mark or not. I remember when I was uh, pastoring a church in, uh, in Malaysia, I, had, I was pastoring the, the main church, the, 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 um, the mother church. But what had happened was that in this church in Kuala Lumpur, some of my, the members from other churches that I had planted out, uh, further out, um, that I knew much better, that I had a sort of a different kind of relationship, came to study in the university. And uh, I was, of course, very glad to see them. They were now here. And I did not know this church that I was now newly, newly the pastoring, this mother church. But I knew the members from the church that I had pioneered because I, we had, you know, it was blood, set and sweat and tears. And I remember one, one of the members coming in, she was very young, and, uh, and she had come to the main church. And uh, after several months, uh, some of the members said, hey, why are you, I noticed that you are treating this person very differently. You seem to be stronger on her. You seem to expect more. And she's only a university student. And then I realized what was happening. That what had happened was that because my relationship with her when she was very young in high school uh, was one in which she was being discipled. As a discipler, I knew what she was capable of. I knew that there was more that God had for her. And I related to her when she came to Kuala Lumpur in a very different way than I, re- than I related to most of the members in that church because I was like a spiritual father to her. Now, I don't want to presume upon myself all this fatherness and all that. I know that sometimes cults come out of that. But nevertheless, there's a way in which she took it well and she was able to grow. And people would ask her, why is it when he's so hard on you, you are so joyful and you are so happy and always still smiling? And she said, he's my father. Of course, this was when I was very young. I was not even married. She said, he's my, this is my father. And then I realized after that, thinking about that, that actually there is something about it. There is something about it. God wants to relate to us in that way. Sometimes when we have no... Um, standards or no reference points. There's no, no person who's loving us enough to actually disciple us. We become a little bit like orphans. And, and in that, we are constantly looking for signs of affirmation. We're looking for signs and we are quite happy with any standard that's no standard, that's relative to others. And many Christians are looking for that. They can't take the discipline of the Father or the mother upon the son or the daughter, because they've not have never experienced what it is to actually 
be brought up. And what God is saying to us today is this. I bring you to the wilderness so that I can be your father. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that in spite of our own waywardness, our own ways in which we look to other things to satisfy our hunger, your love never ceases. Thank you, Lord. You say that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. We are your sons and daughters, Lord. We recognize that so much of the time we live as if you are not our parent, and we are confused, and we are often looking everywhere except you to know where we stand, who we are, what our identity is. And we ask you that even now in this wilderness time that you will cause us to be drawn to you. We let go of those other loves and desire to return to you. In Jesus' name, amen.